The Mac Observer's Mac Geek Ab, episode 836 for Monday, October 5th, 2020. Greetings, folks, and welcome to the Mac Observer's Mac Geek Ab. You know, it's the show where you send in your questions, your tips, your cool stuff found. We take all of that. We mix it together. We form an agenda. We go through the agenda. We take some tangents occasionally. It's okay, though, because the goal is for each and every one of us to learn at least how many? That's right. Five new things every single time we get together. Sponsors for this episode include TextExpander.com slash podcast, Linode.com slash MGG, Nebia.com slash MGG with, uh, with coupon code MGG. That shower, I finally got to test it. I'll tell you more about it in a minute. But holy cow, we are loving that thing. And PlushCare.com slash MGG. We'll talk more about all of those later. All right. Now here in Durham, New Hampshire, I'm Dave Hamilton. And here in Fairfield, Connecticut, this is John F. Braun. How you doing today, Mr. John F. Braun? Um, yeah, okay. as well as can be expected. Well, you know, yeah. Other, other than the pandemic, Mrs. Lincoln, I think is probably something appropriate or fitting. I don't know if it's appropriate, mm. but anyway, should we do a show? You, uh, let's, let's. Why not? Okay. Uh, we'll start with a couple of quick tips. I didn't get too many this week, which surprised me. Um, Adam though, well, really Gary asked the question and Adam from Adam Christensen from MacCast shared the answer. And so it became a quick tip, but Gary was wondering how to, uh, create playlists in Apple pod, Apple's podcast app. And Adam pointed out, uh, his, Gary even asked Apple about this and Apple's support didn't really have. Uh, an answer, but perhaps they didn't understand the question well enough. Adam did, thankfully, because he says you can create stations, which are groups of podcasts that you can then control like a single podcast feed. You can control the play order, how many podcast episodes to keep slash download, etc. And you can access these stations from the library tab, tap edit, and uh, you can edit the station. So not call the playlist, but probably gets you the functionality that you're looking for. And we love that. So thank you to uh, thank you to Gary and Adam for pulling that together. So, uh, right. John, you have a timely quick tip to share. Uh, yes. Uh, John wrote in and said, hello. First off, thank you for keeping your show non-political. <laughs> um, that being said, here is a quick tip. If you want to avoid political ads on YouTube, set your VPN server to a different country than the usa i'm using canada and it seems to work you will still see youtube ads but it'll stop those annoying political ones i like that idea um, that's a smart use of a vpn yeah I, I found personally dave i found facebook is pretty good about honoring your wishes and that if you see an ad you'll get hide ad or report ad yep um and i found that that helps fine-tune um what uh, Facebook shows me. Uh, YouTube, on the other hand, I don't like because they have some ads where they roll it and there is no option to either rate it or stop it. So, right, right, right. Yeah, for sure. Yeah. 
Well, so thanks, John. Yeah, good stuff. Cool. All right. Uh, less quick, more tips. Do you want to take us to Louis? Oh, wait. Uh, right. Isn't Louis next? Yes. All right. Cool. Yes, he is. No, no, I, I got him here. All right. Cool. Okay. Well, he got he he has a quick one. So you know, Louis in a prior episode asked for suggestions on how to uh, on how to lay out his uh, new network, and um, the recommendation was you know. Or he has a follow-up question for our recommendation. Um, so he finished planning his network, and he knows he will have a main network hub, uh, or rather a switch, because uh, we don't do hubs anymore, <laughs> with two satellite hubs. My question is, is it preferable for my switches to be all smart switches? And I'm looking at the TP-Link, and I think the answer is pretty simple with that one, Dave. I don't see any reason why you shouldn't. Um, the one that I have, uh, and the one I have is from TP-Link, um, and it's the TLSG1024DE, and actually it looks like they're up to version 4 now of the hardware, so that's neat. Mine's version 3. Um, but, you know, this particular one, it's 24 ports, gigabit, um, which uh, I actually upgraded from an 8-port because I ran out of ports, Sure. so uh, that's why I got the 24-port. Um, but it provides, uh, you know, what they're saying. So network monitoring, you know, you can see a summary of the amount of traffic that's on either port, the state that it's in. But you could also do some other things. Uh, quality of service, VLAN. Um, what else have I done? Uh, link aggregation. You can set it up to do that. So um, and right, it has so a web-based user interface. I, yeah, I need to ask you about this. I'm definitely taking us on a tangent here. Sorry, folks. Um, mm -hmm. But hopefully this is good for all of us. So, I, you know, I have lots of different. I, different points in my house slash office where I need switches. And I think mm -hmm. I counted that I, in order to run things the way that I do, I, I need, it's either five or six. I can't off the top of my head. I can't remember, but that's a lot. Right. Um, and it's just because I have these like little pockets of devices and, and you know, it's a house. It wasn't built with ethernet in mind, whatever, 50 years ago. So that's just how it goes. And, uh, and I've always thought, you know, if I went to smart switches, things might be better. Uh, but of course, there's a pretty significant expense delta between uh, what we'll call a dumb switch and a smart switch, right? Usually double, sometimes quadruple the price, you know, okay. right? So so that if there is any reason uh, to avoid smart switches or manage switches, and, and, I, and I think the lines might be blurred between the two a little bit, uh, then that would be it, right? Cost, because otherwise, sure. I, I I would agree. So I've been looking for a reason to justify to myself spending the money to go with smart switches. And I thought, you know, a month or two ago when I found that I was having this issue with, with this machine in the studio had dropped down uh, to 100 megabit from gigabit and I didn't realize it for a while. I thought, wouldn't it be great if I had a switch that would somehow alert me to this? Well, I plugged it into the one I have a unified smart switch uh, from Ubiquiti. And it like, yeah, it reported like if I looked in the switch interface, it reported that it had, you know, it was at 100 megabit, just like my dumb switch did if I looked at the lights on the front. Um, but it didn't like there was no notification. There was no like I wasn't getting it would not have helped me in that scenario. So I'm trying to figure out what like what will convince me that I should spend money on on a smart switch and I and or on smart switches, I should say. And I'm, I don't know, like, I, I'm not, 
I, like I'm looking, I'm, I'm just looking for one of you to tell me to spend some money and, and okay. So you make it. a good point. So, so one, uh, this particular one, I saw it for about a hundred bucks. Okay. So that's for a 24 port. If I, if I got a, yeah, but, uh, yeah. So at least for this number of ports and this speed, I don't think a hundred bucks is too much to pay. Agreed. But for some people that may be too much. So you may want to get a dumb one and you could probably get a dumb one for, I don't know. Yeah. So, so will your, but no, so it has, for example, so one thing, for example, so I'm looking at some of the things and here's some of the things you may like. So quality of service. So you can set priority of the different ports. Okay. Okay. So you may want to do that. So if you need to throttle and, and, you know, um, you know, be kind of like, you know, what the Eero does. The Eero kind of prioritizes things when it needs to, or you can ask it sure. to. So this is just the equivalent. You're getting equivalent features. I, I would say that most people network. in their home don't need that, like internal to the home. You need you like with Wi-Fi. Yeah, because you have limited bandwidth that, you know, limited wireless bandwidth that you're mm -hmm. dealing with with gigabit stuff. I mean, I, I run a pretty geeky home and I've never run into any uh, issues of with that. I mean, I I grok that. Right. You know, so I'm. I'm so here's my question. Will that switch identify and or prevent uh, loops? Does it have loop detection or loop prevention in it? One of the features that I see on the list here is storm control. I think that's what you're looking for. Um, I, I, That would be part of it. Yes. Yes. Storm control. I certainly have my my experiences with with network storm. Yeah. So it has different parameters uh, and it has different types of uh, prevention here. So maybe preventing, uh, you know, preventing some peripheral that's out yeah. of control from saturating your network. Um, I mean, that's the reason we went, you know, from hubs to switches. Is because right. That happened right. Right. Really easily with hubs, not so much with switches. Right. But, um, right. Right. Okay. Yeah. And it yeah. looks like this has loop prevention too. Mm -hmm. Okay. So I, what I need to get over, and you said this thing's like a hundred bucks. So I, I would love, and maybe this is where I can't justify spending the money is, is I, I like, I like the idea of having a single interface where all of my switches know about each other. And that's what I would get if I went with all Unify switches, for example. And I think Netgear has a a, a management, like an overall management interface like this too. Uh, mm -hmm. But so so maybe that's where we're looking at managed switches versus smart switches, where the smart switch is basically right. only looking at itself. Uh, and please correct us if we're wrong about this. I'm, I'm, you know, I know enough to, to be dangerous and to misinform. So if, if I'm misinforming, please feedback at MacKeyCab.com, please. Uh, right. And, um, and I'm not going to loop on this. Uh, well, I'll loop once on this and that's feedback at MacKeyCab.com. I'll loop a second time and say feedback at MacKeyCab.com. But then our show's loop prevention kicks in and, and stops that silliness, which is outstanding. So maybe I need to look more at like what would how important is it to me to have smart switches that are managed versus just smart switches? Because you're right. A hundred bucks for a 24 port switch. I mean, there's two places in my network where I need a switch this big. One is by my television mm. and one is in my office. But otherwise, you know, I've got like a few eight port switches here and there and, and they seem to, you know, that's that's all I need. So maybe this is what I need. 
um, yeah, well, manage. Well, you're switching. Manage the, Go ahead. Say what you're no. going to say. Then I have a question. Yeah. No, it doesn't. And I think the reason you would want. So, so a managed switch, and I really haven't done too much with this, but yeah, I know enough maybe to be dangerous. Right. But those are ones where you use what I believe is called SNMP, Simple Network Management Protocol. And then you have a console that talks that and that lets you have all sorts of control. And I think we'll also get notifications. Yeah, um, it could be based on SNMP. I know Ubiquity's stuff is their own, like it's their own interface. No, and, okay. the, and the switch is like, you get a beautiful graphical thing and it knows which switch mm -hmm. is connected to a, what other switch. And like, I like the idea of that, but you know, to do that in my house, I'm probably looking at like two grand, you know, and it's like, uh, I could probably do this for 500 bucks. So mm -hmm. Yeah, I I need smart unmanaged switches. Okay, okay, all right. Well, this is a good year end uh, write off for you know for what we do mm -hmm. here. So okay, <laughs> all right. Uh, that's because that's because I, you're right. It's the storm prevention and the loop prevention that I really want out of these, or that I, I I mean, let's face it, that I really need out of these in order to keep my my myself sane. Uh, because trying to mm -hmm. diagnose those without anything smart in in there that can tell you what's going on is like yeah it i've done it a, a lot over the last 15 years it's not fun i've gotten good at it, it doesn't mean i like it so <laughs> but a lot of it is like sniffing and trusting your gut like oh, i think it might be this thing and you know uh, so anyway uh it, yeah brian monroe in, in the chat room at live.macgeekab.com points out that while I'm doing this, I should consider if I want to add power over Ethernet or power over Ethernet plus POE support when I upgrade my switches. My one uh, Unify switch from Ubiquity has power over Ethernet on it. And I have been thinking about getting a um, – I have one spot in the house where in the attic I have a switch because that's where the cable from the that, – that connects the office and the house comes in. And so I want to have a um, I need to have a switch up there because that, you know, that's it's there. There, there are multiple Ethernet cables that meet up there and it would be great to have that powered by a, a UPS. And I do have a UPS pretty much right underneath it in the bedroom where there is also another small switch. So if I made that bedroom switch a power over Ethernet capable switch of delivering power over its Ethernet ports. And I made the switch in the attic capable of being powered by power over Ethernet. And I know these two things are possible. Then that one in the attic would always have power, even in, uh, you know, when power flickers or whatever, as long as the, 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 you know, the one in the bedroom was on a UPS, which it always is. So that, that, that's a good point, Brian Monroe. I need to be smart about this. But I think the first two that I will, maybe it's worth spending a couple hundred bucks um, on, on replacement switches for my, I think I've got 16s in the office and the, and the living room right now. And so maybe, you know, I spend a couple hundred bucks and replace those two with some smart switches and see if my life starts to get better. And then, and then, you know, go from there. So I don't know. Thank you for taking me on this. I know we're in the middle of the tip section and yeah. And, and I mean, my other sure. criteria was, so the prior version of this that I had, the thing that I didn't like about it and the reason that I upgraded also was you had to run a Java utility in order to manage it. 
it didn't have a web interface. That's another reason I chucked it is because oh, that was annoying. That's annoying. No, I definitely want like web interface or better, right? But not Java. There's nothing wrong with Java other than that, you know, not not any device I have in my hand can log into it. it I need mm-hmm. to yeah, configure ahead of time. So, OK. All right. Uh, this is this has been great. Um, yeah. All right. Um, let's where I don't even know where we are anymore here. You know what I want to do, John is, uh, before too much longer, I mentioned it in the, uh, in the beginning of the show. And now I want to talk more about it, but I'd, I'd love to talk about our first two sponsors. If that works for you, Mr. Braun, please. All right. Our next sponsor up is Nebbia. I have been waiting for like a month to talk again about Nebbia here because the first time I was not able to set up the thing because I had just had gallbladder surgery. And now, man, I am so happy that I was able to set up my Nebbia by Moen spa shower. It really is. It like turned my shower into this spa. It's like it's warm. Just go get one. Just go to Nebbia, N-E-B-I-A dot com slash M-G-G. Use coupon code M-G-G when checking out. You get 15% off site-wide right now. This thing's freaking amazing. I never thought that my shower could be like this. But with this uh, Nebbia by Moen, it, it all plugs in. Look, I'm a terrible plumber, okay? And it took me 10 minutes to install this. I didn't have to use any tools. And there were no drips, because it's all it's built for people like me to set this thing up like I can do plumbing, but then there's like drips afterwards. Not with this. It just works. It, everything clicks together. When was the last time you did plumbing and it could just click together? This is it. It's amazing. It uses atomizing spray nozzles that produce smaller, faster droplets than standard showers. And so the, the, the TLDR version is that you get smaller droplets over a larger surface area. And that means greater coverage and lots of water saved. The spray force is more powerful than anything I've ever used and saves almost half the water. And I'm somebody that likes to feel the water, like, you know, hitting me in the shower. And of course I like the water pressure to be enough to, you know, like rinse my hair and stuff. No problem. It's amazing how well this works. It's really a spa-like feel. I got the one with the wand, and they tell you to put the wand at, like, hip height so that you get this, like, 360-ish kind of thing going on, and it's just warm, and, oh, you got to check it out. Again, nebia, N-E-B-I-A dot com slash M-G-G. Make sure to use that coupon code M-G-G when checking out. 15% off site-wide right now. Go check it out. Nebbia.com slash MGG. Our thanks to Nebbia by Moen for sponsoring this episode. Next up, Text Expander from Smile at TextExpander.com slash podcast. You can take your time back with the power of Text Expander just like I have. You know, all those repetitive typing, the little mistakes, searching for answers, searching your sent email box for that email that you thought you crafted really well so that you can copy and paste it into the next one. I mean, it's a great idea. Don't get me wrong. It, like, it's really smart. If you've written something once, you should just use it again. But you don't want to be scouring through your sent box. You don't want to have to find like, you know, oh, it's in a different font because I replied to a person and now I got to change it and strip it and all this stuff. No, you put it into text expander, right? And you can even put like 
little variables in there so that it asks you, hey, you're, you know, invoking this thing. Say it's a maybe you've got a product and you're using it for your customer service replies, right? You can have it ask you for the name of the product so that you can your email can say, hello, Tim. And you could even ask for the person's name or maybe even get it from the clipboard or something. And then, you know, hello, Tim. Thanks so much for or sorry to hear you're having trouble with our, you know, widget A, whatever it could be. Right. But it asks you for the name of widget A. So you're not accidentally pasting in the thing that doesn't say Tim and doesn't say widget A. It says Susie and widget B. Now, that's bad because now Tim doesn't feel like you care as much about Tim, even though you really do. You just don't care about the way you were doing it. Text expander. This is how it works. You put all these snippets into text expander and then you invoke them. You either do it with a menu or. Or you type a short bit of text and it expands into the larger bit of text, like a little trigger phrase and boom, there it goes. Works on all your devices, available on Mac, Windows, Chrome, iPhone, iPad, and you get 20% off your first year at textexpander.com slash podcast. Go check it out. This is one of my favorite apps. I couldn't possibly do anything that I do without it. We use it even for crafting our show notes here. It's like, yeah. You got to check it out. Textexpander.com slash podcast. Our thanks to Smile and Text Expander for sponsoring this episode. All right, John, let's uh, let's go back to the tips, shall we, my friend? And uh, let's go to Albert here. Albert, um, it, it brings us back a few episodes where we were talking about um, fixing duplicate duplicated photos, especially in a sync. And he says he's got a complex response, but he might have some useful tips for Mark's photo syncing problem because he's been fighting the same thing. He says, uh, in looking at it, this is what the sync process seems to be doing. Uh, when syncing is started, it scans the libraries such as photos on the Mac and compares against the device's library contents, uh, being like, so your iOS device, he says, uh, I'll stick with photos from here on. He says music may be similar, but he's not entirely sure. He says it makes up a list of the photos to be loaded onto the device. It starts copying the photos to the device from that list. Photos seems to be loaded to the device, but is not immediately added to the library. He says all this time, there should be spinning arrows in the device's top bar on the Mac. It appears in my case in the music program with the sync window. He says, after the files are up to, uploaded my iOS device um, uh, uh, to my iOS device, the sync process still continues and populates the iOS devices, in his case, the iPads library, with the photos that have already been transferred. He says, I can verify this by looking at the uh, storage size used and the number of photos shown in general and about. The number of photos continues to increase after my Mac has finished syncing them uh, and my Mac thinks it is finished. Uh, he says after the library completes populating itself, it's still performing more library maintenance, such as recognizing people's faces and object detection. He says this is done with the device locked and connected to power. Uh, he says my comments are what's confusing is that the spinning gear does not appear in obvious places. I start out of habit with the music program and click the sync settings button. The status of the sync is confusing because it appears in the music and sync window that one is a spinning arrow and the other is a spinning gear and then later a pie status. So, yeah, this is this is interesting that, you know, he and he says, if you unplug at certain points, you will get photos that are stuck in this sync process, but never actually finish. And so he says, um, my advice is one, 
set your iOS device. If you're syncing manually, not to lock the screen and to set the screen brightness down, set your Mac, not to sleep. He says, I use amphetamine. That's one of our favorite little tips and, and tools. We love amphetamine, the, the app, I'm not talking about anything else that we call amphetamine. Uh, but uh, yeah, he says, so set your Mac and iOS device not to sleep during the sync. Number three, be patient and don't start a sync unless you don't need the device for a while. For a lot of photos, he says, I do it overnight and do not start another sync until the spinning gear on the Mac and the spinning gear on the iOS device disappears. So the, the, the important thing to take away from, from this, and he has some advice for how to fix a, a, a messed up device too, but he says um, his advice is set the, uh, it, that, you know, syncing first copies and then processes and moves into the library. So it's not happening simultaneously, which is why, and, and this is true with that part's true with iCloud too. It pulls the stuff down and then populates the library, which is why things get a little weird. That's true of your Mac as well, coming down from iCloud. He says, now, I've found once the library on the iOS device is messed up, resyncing doesn't usually clear up the situation. Clicking on option to not sync and then syncing photos does not work well. Besides reinitializing the device from scratch, he says, which I've done in the past and is not optimal, what I do is have another user log in with an empty or small photo library on the Mac, connect to that user and choose to sync that user's photos. Select yes to delete the existing synced photos on the device from the computer. It does not delete the photos from the camera roll. Uh, you must wait for the deletion to actually complete. It continues deleting after it appears to finish syncing. Look for the spinning arrows on the device again to make sure it is finished. Once you do that, go back, sync the device again, which is better than wiping the entire iOS device. So essentially, the solution, if your iOS device, if you're syncing locally and it gets you know to the point where it's messed up, sync it with a different user account that only has like, you know, put put two photos in your test user account. That will wipe everything out of the iOS device and allow you to then sync from scratch without having to wipe everything else. Um, so there you go. That's not a, it, it's it's a, it's convoluted, but I like it. I mean, it, to solve the problem, it's better than just say, OK, let's, you know, let's reset your iOS device from scratch. So that's good. Mm -hmm. Of course, in the chat room, Brian Rowe is suggesting just use iCloud photos, which usually would solve this problem although we've seen syncing issues with iCloud photos too but some people just aren't using iCloud photos so you know there you go i don't know what do you think man um i think we should go on to chuck okay take us to chuck <laughs> all right um chuck has a, a follow-up uh uh so uh in a prior show chuck had a stubborn calendar entry and um, when he tried to delete it, it yelled at him saying he wasn't the administrator or a delegate and so couldn't delete it. And it's like, well, that's kind of stupid. Um, and so we had a few suggestions and fortunately one of them worked. And the suggestion was to right click on the Siri suggestions, uh, other calendar and delete it. Um, so that did it. So, um, uh, but then he says that brings up another question, or rather more of a comment. In searching my calendar to see if I had it under control, I found that it included events as far back as 2009. Mm. Um, 
I had to Google that to find out what OS that would have been um, in 2009, and that would be Snow Leopard 10.6. I would have thought that through all the changes in the OS, at least nine iterations and who knows how many, uh, would have impacted that data. Um, actually, I'm, I, I would hope that it wouldn't be impacted. Same. <laughs> once you put it on there. Yeah. I, I, yeah, I, I have stuff in my, cal- I started using a computer-based calendar in 1993 when I went to a Macworld Expo and saw now up to date and contact, which, you know, are the, at the core of what BusyCal is today. Um, same developers created both um, and have sold it two times uh, now. But anyway, uh, yeah, and I still have all that data. And uh, I mean, it's synced to my iCloud, so it'll go to any calendar mm-hmm. I use. It'll go to Apple's calendar. So, yeah, I, I'm with you. I don't I don't want that stuff to go away. I do keep backups of it all. But yeah. Yeah. But I think, yeah, but at some point something got kind of corrupted. It sounds Yes. So, yes. Yeah. Well, if it happens again, then I don't know. You may want to, um, you know, think of redoing your your calendar. But let's hope it doesn't happen again. Yeah. Yeah. You can always um, export out a calendar, delete it, and mm-hmm. then import it into a new one. Uh, yeah, that's that's what I was thinking. That would. Um, and hey, it may be. Uh, it may not be a bad idea to uh, export your calendar every now and then. Uh, Kind of like doing a backup of it. That, that's one of the I mean, things. There's the raw data. That, no, that's one of the things I like about BusyCal is it'll let me set backups. I mean, I can be obsessive about it. And on one of my machines, I am. You can set it to backup every hour. Mm-hmm. And um, and they're, you know, ICS files. So you can you can slurp them in with anything, which is great. So I think they're ICS files. I say that uh, maybe they're not, but they're slurpable by BusyCal, which has been that's kind of a safety net. But yeah. All right. Um, And another follow up from uh, Neil. So Neil had a problem where BB edit would be um, or when he saved a file from BB edit, it would set a quarantine flag on whatever he saved, which uh, which is bad because then it won't do what you want it to do. Um, But he checked and sure enough. um, So the suggestion was. Check the privacy settings for either full disk access or I think file and folders. Um, but BB Edit didn't have full access. And they warn you in their preferences that if it doesn't have access, strange things like this will happen. So cool. So it's, it's all part of the uh all part of the Catalina lockdown. So as long as you set full disk access, then it does not get that quarantine flag set. Is Correct. that right? Okay. Yeah. Okay. Oh, that's good to know. All right. Huh. Good. Nice. Nice finds. These are good. I like it. All right. Now here, Dimitri, Dimitri has an issue with his monitor. Um, what would you recommend to connect a 4K monitor via Thunderbolt? Three, apparently not as simple as I thought. I have uh, a shiny brand new MacBook Pro 16 inch, an OWC 12 port Thunderbolt 3 dock, which I think you and I both have, Dave, um, and a 4K Ilyama monitor, which um, when I went to the product page, uh, 
apparently that's Russian because <laughs> some of the text was in in uh, Russian characters. Um, but I was able to get the data I need, and it's it's a 4K. Um, and both the monitor and Docker rated for 4K at 60 hertz. Problem, the monitor flickers and goes blank on and off every 5 to 10 seconds from the beginning as I was trying to connect through Thunderbolt 3 dock on mini DisplayPort. I used an off-brand mini DisplayPort to DisplayPort cable. Uh, that may be the problem. Um, that served me well for over a year now with MacBook Pro 15-inch 2012. Okay. Yeah, I had one of those too. Yeah. Uh, no matter how many times I unplugged or plugged power video and Thunderbolt 3 cable, the problem remained. I plugged it back into my old machine and it worked fine. Um, I got the EasyRes app. Okay. Um, that's, a, I guess, kind of a cook tip. Uh, and settled with 3008 by 1692 at 30 hertz, which made things stable and not too small. Um, Okay, so uh, next day, I was frustrated when the monitor won't react when I booted the Mac Pro, Pro 16 at all. I tried unplugging the power to display port cable on the side of the monitor, unplugging power from the dock, unplugging multiple times um, the video cable from the dock, unplugging Thunderbolt 3 cable from the MacBook. Nothing worked until I plugged a monitor with the same cable directly into my old MacBook Pro 15-inch. Then it worked flawlessly. Huh. Um, so this is... What would be your... Uh, oh, go ahead. Sorry, sorry, sorry. Well, and then to wrap it up, he's like, uh, what would you recommend? An adapter or a different cable? Uh, for example, DisplayPort to DisplayPort, um, MacBook Pro to DisplayPort, or HDMI to HDMI. Um, and this is very timely, Dave. One, because I have the same... Oh, I have the same pieces, uh, except for the monitor. Sure. But here's what I think will work. And he didn't say this. Uh, and I'm actually scratching my head over this. Um, so I recently got a USB-C to display port cable. And I find that it works better than HDMI is that the monitor is more responsive. And actually you get, you will get uh, better, re potentially higher resolution with that. Uh, cable versus display port or, or mini display port i think right so yes. here's the issue because i think i think you're right but um usb c to display port really is display port to display port right because the usb c port on your mac will send several different types of signals across it. It will send USB mm -hmm. data signals across it. It will send Thunderbolt data signals across it, and it mm -hmm. will send DisplayPort data signals across it. So you are going native, essentially, it's as native as you can get, DisplayPort from your Mac, just happens to be over USB-C, to DisplayPort on your monitor. When you're going through the dock, you, the dock is doing a... Uh, a translation from Thunderbolt, you know, to, to display port, or I don't want to say conversion translation is probably the wrong word too, but it's, it's connecting, right? So there's, there's something else in there that, that might be causing this issue connecting. And I've, I have this doc in front of me, but if I start pulling it around to see the back, I'm going to, uh, I'm going to definitely going to mess up recording the show. So I'm not going to do it, but mm -hmm. it, if, 
um, and I'm maybe pulling up the other OWC website while we're talking here. If we use assuming that the port on the back of the OWC Thunderbolt dock allows for display port to go from it, you would be using up your lone pass through Thunderbolt port. And I'm not sure mm-hmm. that it would. I think you need to use the display port port on the back of it the mini display port, which is what he's using, right? That's, that's what he said he's using. He's got mini display port, right? To, okay. Yeah. 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 Cause okay. So the doc's got mini display port on it. Um, that doc does not have HDMI. It does have three USB C ports, one on the front that is only a USB C data port. Uh, I think it's a gen two. So a 10 gig data port. And then on the back, mm-hmm. it's got two Thunderbolt ports. I don't know if that second Thunderbolt port on the back, one of them is going to be connected to your Mac, right? So the other one, potentially you could connect to the monitor, but I don't know that it's going to pass that. And the answer is yes, it does. Oh, you've tried it. Okay. All right. Cause I tried it now. Yeah. So uh, I didn't mention this when I got this new cable, but here's the other benefit to this cable. So before I was running HDMI uh, to my 4k monitor, and then I got this cable, which you, I, I was doing USB-C right. to the mon- you know, to the display port uh, on the monitor. Yeah. Here's the other benefit of getting that cable is I could unplug it from the mini and plug it directly into my MacBook Pro 16. But I could also plug that cable into the back of this dock, Dave, okay. as, as you were suggesting. And that also worked. So as long as you don't have another Thunderbolt device coming off of the dock, like a drive, mm-hmm. then you then you could do this and and potentially get it get a better result. I, I, I'd be curious if it does get Dimitri a better result, but but it's certainly worth trying, even if it's not a workable solution long term because of your ports. Um, you know, Thunderbolt three does not have hubbing capability, right? So you can't have more right. than it, a pass through port on it. Thunderbolt. I mean, the other thing, go ahead, is get this cable and plug directly into your MacBook. Right, just slightly less convenient. He does have four ports on his MacBook, right? Mm-hmm. But, but yeah, I yes. mean, he, I think my guess is he is he's looking for a convenient option with one cable, right, to to plug in and be done. But yeah, 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 yeah. Yeah, so you'd have two cables plugged into your MacBook instead of one, instead of one, but, right? But if it's more yeah. reliable, then then totally worth mm-hmm. it. We got to get Larry O'Connor on the show. Maybe we can get him on for a segment next week, John, because mm. I, I had a conversation with him earlier this week, and I don't want to try and, and relay it without processing a little more. But um, we were talking about the differences between Thunderbolt 3 and Thunderbolt 4. And basically, the one thing that Thunderbolt 4 will give us if and when we get it on the Mac is hubbing. So you can have an extra Thunderbolt port added by a, a Thunderbolt 4 dock. Uh, but it gets it's a lot more nuanced than that because that's the only thing we would be using Thunderbolt 4 for. So even if and when we get Thunderbolt Max, we would probably, those of us that need it, would have a Thunderbolt 4 hub for for giving us more Thunderbolt ports. And then we would plug Thunderbolt 3 devices into that because Thunderbolt 4 does not allow us to use all four PCI lanes for data traffic. Uh, It only uses one. 
So if you want to use like a Thunderbolt drive or something that requires speed, you would need Thunderbolt three, not Thunderbolt four. So it's very interesting. They are, they are complementary. not uh, Thunderbolt four does not replace Thunderbolt three, but it, it's, mm-hmm. it's a lot more nuanced than that. So, and Larry that he from other world computing is who we're talking about here, Larry O'Connor. So let's try and get him on the show and, and maybe we can record a segment with him this week, John, because I, I, uh, and, and have it for next week's show because it, it would be really valuable. So anyway, we will circling back to that, but, but yes, Thunderbolt four, if, and when we get it on max will bring us the ability to hub and OWC now has a Thunderbolt four hub, um, I, of course it doesn't work with Macs because there are no Macs that have Thunderbolt four, but, um, but yeah, mm-hmm. it's got three Thunderbolt four ports on it, which is kind of cool. So anyway, uh, or there it's in pre-order. They announced it, which is, which is cool. Um, so, uh, I'm hoping we get to use those on our Macs someday, but you know, that's how it goes. Uh, all right. Uh, no, that's the wrong thing. I'm trying to get the show notes right while we're doing the show. And it sometimes just gets crazy, mm-hmm. but, uh, but there we go. All right, uh, let's let's go. Oh yeah, Dan, this was potentially life changing here. So we're good with Dimitri, right, John? Mm-hmm. Okay, cool. Uh, so Dan uh, shared a tip and then has a question. So we'll use this to sort of migrate here from one to the other. He says, "I finally updated my iPhone to fourteen point zero point one and my Apple Watch to seven point zero point one." After two days, I was experiencing a drastic decrease in battery life. And I'm, I pause here because I totally misinterpreted his email the first time I read it, and it led me down a solution path for something else. So I'm going to paraphrase his email, and then I'll go back and, and say it. So he said, after two days, I was experiencing a drastic decrease in battery life on my Apple Watch. That's the part he didn't add. Uh, without using any new features like hand washing or sleep tracking. I tried unpairing and repairing the watch. Battery life seemed better. But when I tried turning on watch unlock on my iMac, uh, so he, so first of all, th- th- this is the tip, right? He unpaired and repaired the watch and got his battery life better. I read this, John, think if we all read things with our own perspective, and then we'll, I'll get to his, his, his question here too. But, uh, you know, we all we all bring our baggage to to these things. So I'm reading this late at night, some night, I don't know, maybe Friday night or something, Thursday night, whatever it was. And uh, I've been having terrible battery life recently on my iPhone 11 Pro. And so as soon as I saw this, I was like, oh, he solved the battery life problem. And I immediately unpaired my watch from my iPhone 11 Pro repaired my watch to it. It goes through the whole process of restoring the backup that it just made of your watch to the thing. And, you know, it takes its time. And since then battery life has been better on my iPhone 11 pro. I was not having battery life problems on my watch, but I was having terrible battery life problems on my iPhone and repairing my watch to it. Solved those because I mis I misinterpreted what Dan was telling us and I took a different solution path. Now, it turns out, at least based on our anecdotal test cases of one each, that battery life problems with either watchOS 701 or iPhone or iOS 1401 can be solved by unpairing and repairing a connected Apple Watch. So that's a that's a huge takeaway, Uh, you know, perhaps uh, probably not quite as important as the switch thing we had, but maybe 
because when my watch battery, like it was dying twice a day, John, it was ridiculous. I would mm. charge it up at my desk while I was doing nothing all like, I mean, I was doing stuff at my desk, just not on my phone. It would be, you know, almost dead before I, I left my desk. And so I would charge it up and then go home, you know, 80% battery life. Okay. Whatever you know, from six to 11 PM, it would be down at, you know, 5% or, or something. It, it's just crazy how, how fast. And this is my issue with the Apple watch, right? Because Apple does not give us, if I had activity monitor on the Apple watch, John, I could see what process was using CPU and therefore battery life. Right. Mm-hmm. I mean, in theory, I could do that. We don't get activity monitor on the watch. We mm-hmm. do if well, maybe the new X version of Xcode fixes this because you can run um I forget what it's called in Xcode. Maybe somebody in the thing in the chat room will help me. But um oh what's it? It's a one word thing. It's on the tip of my tongue. Anyway, it it's essentially activity monitor, but it only runs when the when the with previous versions of Xcode, it only would run when it was plugged in. So you weren't really getting a feel for what the the phone was doing. Because when the phone's plugged in, it does a whole lot more. It says, oh, I've got juice. I should go syncing and I should do a lot of my maintenance and my photo processing and like all the stuff that it was queuing up for, you know, when it had juice and could be sort of more cavalier with uh, with power usage. Um, uh, uh, instruments is the part of Xcode. So maybe instruments now will will let me peek into a uh, an iPhone that is wireless and maybe that would help. But um, there is no way to do that. The only thing that we get is Apple's uh, if you go into settings and go to battery and and you get to see like the things that it says have been using your battery. Mm-hmm. But it's it it doesn't list everything. It lists the, the apps, but it doesn't list system processes in there, at least not in any meaningful right, right. way. You know, like it's not telling me what I need to know. It It's telling me which mm-hmm. apps are using like third party app. Well, no, first party apps, too, because like Maps and Safari are in here. But th- that's mm-hmm. not enough that, because clearly that was not the problem. Because if my watch, if my phone mm-hmm. is sitting there on my desk, I'm not using any of these apps, or at least I shouldn't be. And so there was more to it than that. And and I think that trying to sync with my watch, you know, was was part of the issue. So anyway. That's my rant. I really want, really, really want the ability to run Activity Monitor on my on my iPhone. We used to have apps that would show us this, that would run essentially a top, mm-hmm. you know, a Unix top command view on our yep. phones. I, it just drives me crazy, John. I just want to know. That's what helps us solve mm-hmm. problems. Knowledge. Mm-hmm. I'll calm down. I promise. Okay. All right. Um, anyway. Speaking of knowledge. Well, uh, yes. Should we answer Dan's question? <laughs> I don't know that I have an answer oh, for Dan's question. Go ahead. Because Dan had a second part to this where he said now that he has gone through the process of, you know, he unpaired and repaired his watch. It now doesn't unlock his Mac anymore. Uh, he says uh, the Mac says that it cannot communicate with my watch. I've restarted the watch, the iPhone and the Mac, and I still get the same error. He says, I saw a page uh, on Mac Observer. That said to uncheck the box on the Mac, restart the Mac. And the box we're talking about is if you go into system preferences, I probably need to do this on this computer. Uh, if you go into system preferences and you go into security and privacy, there is a checkbox mm-hmm. that says use your Apple Watch to unlock apps and your Mac in the general pane there. 
that is now unchecked for me because the watch that it knew about has been removed. And so I need to recheck that box. I'm not going to do it now. Uh, and so he said, and it's true at, at TMO, we wrote an article that said, you know, uncheck that box, restart your Mac, recheck that box. And he says, but I've tried all of it with no luck. The phone is on and unlocked. The watch is on my wrist and unlocked. And I disconnected all other Bluetooth devices except for my keyboard and touchpad. He says, I don't know if it means anything, but when I do restart the Mac, the original lock screen uh, on the original lock screen, it still says under the password field that I must type my password after a restart in order to enable watch unlock. I'm wondering why that would still show there when the feature is not checked in my security settings. Could something be hung up somewhere else? Certainly sounds like it. This sounds like one of those, you know. Check the box, uncheck the box, you know, we wipe out that setting could be a NVRAM reset, right? Or a PRAM reset, SMC reset might be like, I don't know where it's storing the, this Mac has permission to let that watch do it, you know, unlock it. So uh, I would like, that's, that's the only thing we found is is you know the checking and unchecking of that box and the restarting and and all of that so i don't if anybody has an answer let us know john now you want to take us to listener john ah yes cool so this this uh is kind of a blast from the past um all right so john says i have a problem with my usb drive plugged into my macbook air the drive is now read only I have tried using the following terminal command, sudo mount dash uw uh, slash, then kill all finder, but this did not solve the problem. I tried reformatting the drive on both Mac and PC, and I got the message the flash drive is read only, and I could not format it. I called Apple support, and I was instructed to restore the OS. This did not work. And here's the part that made me realize what the issue is, Dave. So up until this point, I was like, wow, this sounds terrible. Um, I also tried several third-party SD card formatters. <gasps> SD, that's the secret here. <laughs> and they did not work either. Any ideas? I can read and copy data, but I can't write to the flash drive. I don't think there's anything broken in the flash drive since it stays connected to my Mac all the time, and there is no physical damage. All right, Dave. Yeah? What, remember where back are, in the where day, are you going um, with this? Yeah. Remember back in the day... Uh, with floppy disks um and they had a notch on the side dude yeah and if you covered the notch you could no longer write to the uh to the disk yeah you, you put a piece of that's tape exactly over what's yes that's exactly what's happening here oh. if you look on or every sd card that i've used dave has a little sliding switch on the side um now, shame on some of the manufacturers. For example, I have one that I use in my camera. Okay. Um, uh, from Lexar. And it has uh, a little switch on it. Um, but there's no, des there, there's no indication as to what it's for. Interesting. And at this point, you can probably figure out what that little switch is for. That yeah. little switch. Yeah. Uh, if it's in one position, we'll make the device read only. I guess if you want to archive stuff, that may be a, something you want to do. Um, in the other position, uh, you can read and write. So I think you inadvertently nudge that switch into the read only position. Um, 
Now, I verified this. Um, and the thing is, the OS is honoring what the card is saying. Right. It's not going to write to it. And so I, I even did this. So uh, on my MacBook, I took one of the uh, Anchor. Well, here's a little interesting observation, Dave. So I took one of my Anchor USB-C docks uh, devices that have an SD card reader in it. Yeah. And just verified this. So, you know, I put the card in. It showed up on the desktop. I did a get info and it said under the uh, permissions, you have custom access. I'm like, no, oh, okay, that's neat. Um, then I spit it out and move the switch to the other position. And when I did a get in, get info, Dave, um, under sharing and permissions, it now said you can only read. Oh, interest. Okay. So it, it like, it tells the operating system that this is a, a read only device and thou shalt not change that. Fascinating. Yes. Okay. So some- here's the inter- here's the interesting thing, Dave. Um, I'm not sure why this happened. I'll try it again. But when I tried it with one of my anchor devices that had an SD card slot, moving the switch did not have that effect. And that I, no matter what position the switch was in, I could still write to the drive. And would it actually write to the drive or was it just the OO? So like it, like, oh yeah, I I dragged the file over. And it stayed there even after you removed it and put it back in. Mm -hmm. Okay. Wow. Yeah, so I don't know if their device is not looking at that pin on the uh, connector. Yeah, so that was my question: is is this a is this an informative switch where it's telling the the host device please honor this, or is it mm-hmm. like a switch that that prohibits itself from being written to? And it sounds like you proved that it is a request, not um, it's a vote, not not a mandate. So. Yeah, I'm pretty sure it it sets a voltage on the pin that's closest to the. Uh, uh, okay. Yeah, I could, I could actually. Yeah, I could actually check that with my meter. Yeah, huh, I'll have to do that. Okay, or read the specification for SD. Yeah, I'm right. Sure, that's right. what it's that, doing. They would tell yeah. us. Yeah, exactly. Huh. Interesting. Interesting. But yeah, this is. I don't think this is a feature in CF cards. So the, there's two major right. form factors. Uh, for flash memory these days or last i checked sd is uh, lower end i would say yeah uh the cf is is the other form factor um and i think they're generally faster and you know most you know high-end uh digital cameras use cf whereas the lower end use sd that may not be true anymore i don't know but my camera uses sd hard okay i got you yeah 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 okay that makes sense. That makes sense. Yeah. But wow, I don't believe. <laughs> yeah. I don't know why Apple tried to tell him to, uh, get a reinstall his operating system. That see. Yeah. I mean, I know we get some things wrong here too. I mean, we, I, I, it's not that I know mm-hmm. it happens all the time, but it is, it's dangerous, right? When potentially dangerous. I mean, they, they had this poor guy reformatting his Mac. It, well, it, restore the OS. Um, Oh, that's I, I not reformat. Th- that's reinstall on top of itself. Right. Yeah. I okay. think they suspected that the part of the OS that looks at the yeah. read write state um was screwed up. Yeah. So eh, not a bad guess. No, not uh, no. I yeah. This is why I'm I'm I, perhaps this is why we geeks are are hesitant to suggest those sort of, you know, nuke and pave, uh, you know, those wide sweeping uh, solutions to problems because 
they can cause more headache than they solve too, right? And and it's much better if you can find the little needle in the haystack, for example, like this, than just say, all right, wipe it clean. Because in this case, wipe it clean. Thankfully, they didn't recommend that. But, you know, even if they had, it would not have mm-hmm. changed the uh, the issue. So, yeah, fascinating. All right. Uh, we have some more questions to get to, which I want to do. The next thing I want to do is I want to tell you about our next two sponsors. If we're all good with the, with what we've just done here, John. Cool. All right. Our first sponsor here is Linode and there's a new deal. So you're going to want to listen here. You know, whether you're working on like your personal projects or managing something huge for your company, you deserve simple, affordable and accessible cloud computing solutions that allow you to take whatever project you're working on to the next level. And you can simplify your cloud infrastructure with Linode's Linux virtual machines, and you can develop, deploy, and scale your modern applications faster and easier. I told you there was a new deal. You can get started on Linode today with $100 in free credit for listeners of this show. Yeah, $100 in free credit. So you go to linode.com slash MGG to get all the details and to get signed up. Linode's got 11 global data centers and provides 24-7, 365 human support with no tiers or handoffs regardless of your plan size. So in addition to shared and dedicated compute instances, you can use your $100 in credit on S3 compatible object storage. Storage. You can use your credit. You can use it for managed Kubernetes. I don't even know what that is. I got to find out what that is. We all need to. And more. So visit linode.com slash MGG and click on the create free account button to get started. Again, that's linode.com slash MGG. Create your free account. Use your $100 credit. Our thanks to Linode for sponsoring this episode. Next up is Plush Care at plushcare.com slash MGG. You know, now more than ever, you really shouldn't put off seeing a doctor when you're not feeling well. And I know that with everything going on, it can be difficult to put your health first, especially if that means leaving your house and going to a doctor's office, right? And so that's why I really like to use Plush Care. They make seeing a doctor super easy and I can do it right from home. Plush Care provides virtual doctor appointments. They're not virtual doctors. They're real doctors. The appointments are virtual, right? You understand the, the difference there? It's a, it's a grammatical thing, but it, it matters. You're talking with a real doctor. You're just doing it on your computer or on your phone, video call style. You don't have to be in a waiting room. You don't even have to be in the room with the doctor. And you just pick a time that works, then you book an appointment right online. I did this. It it works great. You don't have to sit on hold forever to make an appointment. And especially, you don't have to leave the house. So with Plush Care, I can be diagnosed, treated, and even have a prescription sent to a pharmacy of my choice if needed. I've done this. It totally works. In fact, it's a way better experience than waiting around at the doctor's office for them to come to you. It's it's like, it's, it's crazy, right? It's great. Plush Care accepts most major insurance carriers and is available in all 50 U.S. states. And the doctors care. They're there to help by discussing treatment options and providing prescriptions as needed. And they're available anytime you have questions. You can text them and message them through the app. It's awesome. You got to check it out. With Plush Care, I don't put off seeing a doctor and neither should you. No more excuses for either one of us. It's a deal. Make your appointment today. Go to plushcare.com slash MGG. That's P-L-U-S-H-C-A-R-E dot com slash MGG. Plushcare.com slash MGG. Our thanks to Plushcare for sponsoring this episode. 
All right. Uh, John, let's go to Andrew here and see mm. if we can help get this problem solved. So he says, uh, a client of mine recently upgraded, updated her 2015 iMac 5K from 10.13 to 10.15, and all went well, except that her time machine stopped backing up to a 4-terabyte external Seagate bus-powered drive. And even after repointing time machine to the drive in the time machine preferences area, it's no bueno. Would you recommend just wiping the external drive, and if so... Is there a special format that you would use for that? GUID, macOS Extended Journal, for example, uh, or maybe after erasing, will she get a dialogue to make it a time machine volume and then will need to be formatted as APFS? There's just one partition on the drive since it's only used for time machine. So, um, yeah, that's I, I would wipe it and start from scratch. Time machine can get tied in knots. We know this. Um, this is one of those things where trying to fix the problem often results in uh, it, it, at best a very short term fix. So if it's at this point, yeah, you need to wipe the external drive, not the internal drive. Just Andrew, you understand that. I just want to make sure everybody understands that. Um, you could, though, use uh, T2M2 or Time Machine Mechanic, I think is what uh, it's called. It's from Howard Oakley over at Eclectic Light. Uh, so T2M2 is uh, something that will show you the status of your backups and also like the right log files. It'll parse through the log files and show you the entries that matter. So this might give you some indication as to what the problem is, but in most cases, the answer is going to be the same. You'll just have a little more knowledge to support your answer than the answer would be to wipe from, from scratch. I would not use APFS for a time machine volume. Uh, I think that's only supported as a big sir, right? I don't think we do that. I'm confused now, John, but um, that's because I got switches on the brain. Uh, but mm. I, I would not use AP. I would not use APFS for time machine on an external volume, especially since I think this is not an SSD. I think it's um, a, a rotational drive. If I'm understanding which bus powered Seagate four terabyte external you have. Mm -hmm. So yeah, I would, I would do the, um, yeah, it's, <laughs> it's, it's, it must be a nice the day. Harleys there, are out. Yeah. Yeah. The Harleys are out. Yeah. Um, so I would, I would, I would definitely format HFS plus for, for this, for this round of time machines. I mean, it also sounds to me like there's something wrong with that, uh, backup file. Cause I recently did this, Dave, you know, my tale of woe where I was, you know, having, um, uh, weird time machine errors because of allocation errors and I restored from a clone. But when I did that, Dave, and, and one symptom was that my time machine was taking forever and, and backing up the wrong data and stuff like that. So when I recreated my time machine backup of that, which is on a network drive, okay. Uh, normally what happens is when you remove and then add a drive again under time machine, if it sees something there that it thinks it can use, it usually will come up, or at least in my case, it came up and said, Hey, there's a backup already here. You want to, you want to continue with this or do you want to get rid of it and make a new one? Yeah. And I actually chose get rid of it and make a new one because I figured that what was there was no bueno. Had, had corrupt uh, corruption at some yeah, point. Yeah, for sure. So if it didn't ask that question, 
that would lead me to believe there may be something funky with that. And yeah, you should just wipe it. Yeah. Yeah. Just wipe. Yeah. 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 With a, with a local drive, just, yeah, just it's easy, especially like you said, there's nothing else on it. So yeah, that, um, I mean, the other suggestion is, uh, make sure that your friend is backing up to something other than uh, something in addition to time machine. Um, right. Yes. 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 Yeah. You don't want any one backup methodology, but we know here that time machine, it's super convenient because it, Mm -hmm. you know, it's integrated into the OS. You've got like very cool ways that, especially with, with things like mail and calendars and contacts where you can like pull things back. Mm -hmm. Uh, not of course the finder too, but it is not reliable. Um, more reliable on a direct attached disc like this, Mm -hmm. Uh, than a network drive where we found it to mm-hmm. be terribly unreliable. But as yes. you're, as you're finding no bueno on uh, it, it's not always reliable on direct attached. It could also be that you're, you're seeing the beginning of some physical corruption on this disc too. Like this might mm-hmm. be, you know, a symptom of that. Just be aware, file that into your head so that if this happens again in three months, like, wait a minute, let's like test that mm-hmm. drive. And yeah. So, all right. Um, a quick one from Greg, I think. Uh, Greg says, I've got a 32-inch LG monitor, and I'd like to use it as a TV when I'm not using it to work from home. I've tried a couple of streaming sticks, an older Amazon Fire Stick that I had laying around, and a brand new Roku, but I'm experiencing an audio problem. The monitor has a headphone out jack that I've connected speakers to that I can't adjust the volume. It seems that the volume controls on the streaming stick are only designed to operate the volume of the TV it's plugged into. Are there any streaming sticks where the volume controls on the included remote control the output volume of the HDMI dongle to the screen? If I could alter the volume that the stick is sending to the monitor, that should adjust the speaker volume. Since the monitor and the speakers lack any remote control functionality, I currently have to manually adjust the volume knob on the speaker itself. Like a caveman. Uh, I'd really like to be able to do this with something a little less expensive than an Apple TV. Hopefully not too much more than the 50 bucks I spent for the new Roku stick. Is there a non-stick solution? <laughs> Funny non-stick solution. Uh, a little box that would sit on the shelf below the monitor, for example. Uh, I'd certainly be open to that. All right. So these volume buttons on the you know Roku remote or the Amazon remote are very similar to the volume buttons on your like cable box remote where you pay, you, you program them with the code that then relates to your TV and your TV receives the power mute and volume can change things. Whereas the Roku box or the Amazon or whatever will receive the channel change and navigation things. And, and so you have this sort of seamless experience where depending on which button you press on the remote, it controls the right device, the TV for volume and power, the, you know, stick, if you will, for everything else. And it, it, it feels like this all in one thing. The first thing I would do in your scenario, and you're right, like now, for whatever reason, TV volume isn't affecting the TV's output volume. So I would look there first because it's possible that in the settings. So grab your TV's remote, go to your TV's settings menu. And look in the audio section to see if the volume control of the TV can be used to control the volume sent to 
the connected device, you know, the, to the headphones, for example, it, it, because that would probably be what we're looking for here. You might find that the TV has an option to, you know, either have the headphones at a fixed volume or at a, you know, volume relative to whatever the volume control on the TV is set to that. Like, that's not uncommon at all that you would have the ability to attach and detach those two things inside the TV, because if you can get them attached, then you're done. You didn't spend any money. You spent five minutes figuring out your TV settings and, and now you can forget them again until the next time. And then you can be frustrated because TV settings are always sort of weird to get to. Um, that would be step one. Step two would be to find, um, I, I would call it a remote and I, I, I can look on Amazon, but you're looking for a device that would be uh, an audio attenuator, an inline audio attenuator, right? Where you're, you're plugging the device into the headphone jack of your TV. You're plugging your headphones into this and you've got it. And I buy these all the time. Uh, in fact, I keep a stock of them that are inline audio attenuators, but they're only with a little knob on them. And they're so that I can control the volume of my in-ear monitors. When I'm on stage, I tie a little one to my belt loop and I've got a volume knob for my in-ears and then I connect a, a extension cable back to the mixer or whatever from that. So it works out great, but mine aren't remote controllable. I bet you can find a headphone, you know, volume knob thing that's remote controllable. The trick, though, would be figuring out how to program your Roku remote to send the volume command that that thing wants to hear or see, I guess. But see, infrared is is seeing. That's a... I don't know. Wants to receive. Let's just go with that. Um, and and figuring that out. And I like that would be the trick because Roku typically like you might have you, there might be a thing where it's like if your TV's uh, if it doesn't work, use your TV remote to program the Roku remote. Like sometimes you can do that. So that would be my uh, my thing. So but first, I oh, OK, I think your TV might have this option. So what do you think, John? Um, no, you, uh, you know, I was fiddling with this the other day on my T of O remote and it has IR and RF modes. I don't know if you knew that. You probably knew that. TiVo will do Wi-Fi. Correct. That's right. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. But that's I think handy. I can also program it though. I don't need to, but I remember with a different setup, I could actually use it to control the volume on the TV as well. Right. But you had to go through this, like, you know, kind of painful process the, the some some ir setups are good in that they they're like hey train me and others are like okay well try this huge list of of codes <laughs> yeah yeah of codes until till you get it and yeah. usually i'm like oh that's too much work mm -hmm. yeah yeah they, they usually like usually the list isn't that terrible um, you know, I usually find like one of the first three, you know, they'll say, oh, if you have, you know, a Sony TV or an LG TV, use this list, start with the top one and you try the code and it's like, oh, it doesn't work. But I, I don't think I've ever got down below number five on the list. It's, it's usually one of the first mm -hmm. three and then it's nice and convenient. So yeah, Brian Monroe suggests that when you're looking through your TV's audio settings, look for something that is called fixed volume versus variable volume, because that's usually, you know, he, he's seen that before in some TVs and he's right. Like that's, that's great. So thank you. All right. We got time, right? Oh yeah. Great. You want to take us to Ken? Yeah. All right. Ken has a mystery, but I've, I think we've solved it. I've installed two pieces of hardware that create a wireless network, a Dymo label printer and a wise 
camera. The Dymo network is, uh, and the name uh, is D-Y-M-O-L-W-W. Don't read the rest of this because it's probably the I know. I'm I'm going to say, and and then a series of characters, which I'm guessing is the MAC address of his printer. My apologies. Uh, And the question is, and the question is, what kind of network is this? And is it safe to use? Um, well, you know what? It sounds like, yes. So um, I identified what, um, what Ken has here. Um, and it's called the Dymo Label Writer Wireless. Um, and um, when you set it up, so a lot of things, like I learned this with, um, with uh, uh, Wi-Fi bulbs, that is the name of the device. And then if you go through a setup procedure, um, at some point, you're probably going to have to select that name um, while you're setting up the printer. And then at some point, it's going to send your credentials uh, for your Wi-Fi network um, to that device. And then it's going to log into your network and then anybody on your network can see it. Um, and they actually have a little training video that actually showed me this. And, you know, they're like, well, one way you can do it is you can do what's called a Wi-Fi protected WPS. If your I've router has used. that. Yeah. Some routers have a little button on it and it's called Wi-Fi protected setup. And that eases this process is that you typically hold down the WPS button on your router and then you hold down some button on the device and it just marries itself to your network. Um, and that's actually the first option that they show in their training video. The second option is like, okay, well, you know, select the Dymo network and then go through these steps. Um, so the thing is, yes, um, I would say it's safe if you want to share the printer with other people in your network, which I assume you got a Wi-Fi thing. So you could do that. Um, but if you don't want to share it for whatever reason, from what I could tell, this device also has a USB port. So if you want to keep it all to yourself, plug it in via USB. If you want to share it with people in your network, then yes, go through the uh, Wi-Fi setup. Yeah. Yeah. And then that network will go away in, in the end. Like once you connect it to your Wi-Fi network, you won't see it broadcasting the Dymo, LW, whatever. Right. Typically, yeah. That's a, And the same with bulbs and a lot of other Wi-Fi devices is you got to put them in a mode where they then create this network and then, yeah. It's just, it just it's just temporary so that you can talk with it like there's no you have to find a way to mm-hmm. talk to this thing and there's no Ethernet port. So, you know, what's the what's the path? Yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Cool. Uh, a quick one, man. I, you know, I'm, I'm curious to see where this question goes. Listener Andrew asks, it says, do you uh, have Linux experience and can you recommend an easy to use and comprehensive resource to learn Linux? Plus, have either of you installed Linux on a Mac, either as a bootable partition or in a virtual machine? Uh, I spend a good chunk of my days in Linux for our various servers and our various businesses. And in reality, in practice, it's not all that different from the Mac OS command line, you know, the terminal, as we as we call it here. Um, There are some fundamental differences in terms of how you control startup scripts. Uh, on Linux versus Mac OS, like but those sorts of things. But in terms of just interacting with it, manipulating files, running, you know, scripts and things like that. No, it, there, it's it's uh, in fact, I had to set the color of my prompts 
to be very different from one another on our servers versus my local Macs so that I know what window I'm in. Uh, you know, like any given terminal window could could easily be the other. And if I decide, oh, I want to restart the Mac in the studio, I don't want to accidentally restart the server that runs Mac Observer. Like these are two very different sets of consequences um, when I do those remotely. So um, the uh, you know, I, I learned Linux a long time ago when I was like a kid logging into different servers to send email from one to the other. Um, but WikiHow has a great sort of place to start for learning Linux. So I will put that in uh, in the show notes for sure uh, for you. And then another great resource is Quora, where somebody asked, you know, are all where do I begin with Linux? And so um, so I'll put that in the show notes, too, uh, because that, you know, that's how we do this. That's how we share links with each other. Um, so, yeah, and you can you can install Linux into a uh, into a virtual machine. I've installed it on my Mac. There's you know all kinds of different distributions that you can set up with. But um but yeah, I don't know. Where, where, yeah, where would actually, you have people start, John? Um, the last time I had to install Linux, I actually did it through Parallels and installed um, Ubuntu. And I think they actually have it as part of uh, when you create a virtual machine. At some point, they're like, hey, what type do you want to create? Uh, hey, you, you can do this one if you want. Sure. And the uh, the installation that I did... Um, I think GNOME is the, uh, is the, the GUI. So I think one, one hint here was one suggest. I think one question was asking is, you know, am I going to have to, you know, do all this stuff from the command line? And the answer is, uh, probably not is that any Linux distribution, including Ubuntu has some sort of GUI to make life a little easier. Nowadays, if they even yeah. have a tutorial built into the installation. Yep. If you yeah. one well, like you, I remember the good old days. Solaris, AIX, um, mm. what else? HPUX I used. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, those are all. It, it, you're right. I learned the Unix command line on Unix, not on not on Linux. That, that mm. all came later. That's right. Yeah, yeah. Um, one it, you talked about. <clears throat> excuse me. You talked about GUIs and the the GUI that if you're gonna run Linux on. You know, let's say you've got an older Mac that's no longer getting security updates from Apple and that sort of thing, but you still want to use it. The elementary OS at elementary.io is going to be a very hmm. familiar interface to you uh, to, you know, compare compared to Mac OS. It's not exactly the same, but it looks great. It's stable. It's updated regularly um, and will run on many, many, many Macs. So, uh so I and, and Windows machine. I mean, it's not limited to Macs, of course, but it's pretty good. And you can, you know, you can get all your stuff down your email. You can it'll run LibreOffice, which is the same. Like, I don't run Microsoft Office anymore, but I, I still deal with work with people where I'm sharing Excel files and I don't want to do the translation back and forth between, you know, pages and or numbers rather and, and Excel because it, it totally munges the file. If you're if you're doing that, I want to leave things in Excel format and LibreOffice on my Mac is flawless for that. And uh, and and the same is true for LibreOffice on elementary OS on Linux. It, it 
LibreOffice is great. So yeah, you can, you can get a lot done with, uh, with elementary IO. And it, it, honestly, if you've got an old windows machine that you don't want to have to run windows on, put elementary OS on it and you know, it becomes a nice little, a nice little workhorse for hmm. you. Yeah. I like elementary. It's pretty good. So anyway, it's just something to mess with something to do. I don't know for all your old Macs that won't upgrade to, you know, Mojave Catalina, big Sur <laughs> kind of thing. Maybe, maybe elementary is the way to go. I don't know, man. Uh, do we have, we've got a, we've got time for a couple of cool stuffs found, John. Do you have any, well, first of all, do you have any more thoughts on the, on the Linux thing before we, before we go nope. there? Okay. Um, it, we, we have a couple of things. The, so the first, speaking of getting some functionality that Apple's apps don't have, listener Scott, uh, points out <clears throat> that mail merge for the Mac exists. I have found it. He says, <clears throat> serialmailer.com is a program where you create a custom email using the tools you know. Create a spreadsheet of the mail merge data as you would within any other app. The app can import the merge data from your address book, an Excel spreadsheet, a CSV, a database, etc. Create an email message that can be formatted or plain text. There are ways to insert fields. There is a special field to do conditional processing. What is really cool, he adds is that you can add custom attachments. For example, add invoices to these emails. The invoice names have a specific format. The format can be derived from merge data. He says, I use customer number and last name. There are actions you can take and all of this stuff. You can preview the messages. Finally, when you're ready to send, there is a dry run mode that will show you what will happen without actually sending the emails. So very, very cool. Serial mailer. We will put that on the, uh, in the show notes, but, um, but that's good. Yeah, we don't really have good mail merge in Apple's apps. So there you go. Thank you, Scott. Pretty cool, huh, John? All right. Yeah. If you want to mail merge, I, I really haven't had a need. Right, right. Well, but yeah, I mean, it, like it's, it's pretty common for small business owners to need to do mail merge. So that's pretty good. Um, yeah, I guess pages won't do it because I actually found an article here saying here's how you do a mail merge and then they start talking apple script so uh, right right yeah it's like yeah okay yeah, yeah yeah may not be a path that you want to take right um so okay so this week john <clears throat> i was <clears throat> i don't know what's going on here i guess i need more water i don't know what's going on mm. Mm. all right um yeah there we go so this week i was messing around in network preferences uh, because I was looking for, I was testing, retesting some of my, my issues with, you know, with the, the port on this Mac that I still haven't gotten fixed just because I have the port on the, the ethernet port on the dock. But anyway, I was in uh, s system preferences looking around. I found myself in sharing. So system preferences, sharing, uh, go to remote login, click the edit button which you might do to change the local computer's name that gets changed. And there's a checkbox there that I had not seen before, John, but it's probably been there a while called use dynamic global host name. And so I started researching, what is this bonjour dynamic global host name? And it turns out it's kind of a, it is a way of using a, dynamic DNS type service to point to your Mac. And, uh, 
And it turns out not everybody supports it, but Dyn does, dyn.com. And so if you have a Dyn account with, to do your dynamic DNS, you could essentially have your Mac be its own client to set this up. You wouldn't need to run the Dyn client or anything like that. And there's a page for, uh, you know, that we'll, we'll link to, of course, in the show notes that, that shows how to do this. But I thought that was pretty cool. I'd never heard of dynamic global host name before. You know, usually you see that in your router and your router is probably a better place to do this anyway. But routers are usually the places where you can log in and, you know, to your uh, various different dynamic DNS providers and have it just keep that up to date with your hmm. current DHCP, you know, address from your cable company or whatever. But I thought that was pretty cool, John. I, I don't, you know, I like digging around and finding hmm. things. So that's, that's what I found. I don't know, man. Any other cool stuff found from you? We have lots, but, uh, you know, we're, we're running out of time, so we're probably not going to get to, uh, we're not going to, we're not going to be able to get to all of them. So, We'll save those. We'll start the next episode with some cool stuff found. I think, I think, I think can't promise anything, but that's, that's how it goes. Usually we know people, we know the people that organize the agenda for the show, John. So mm -hmm. we'll get more cool stuff found in the next episode, but I like to have a couple. Anything more before we, uh, before we say goodbye, John? No. Okay. Well, Getting chilly out there. Hope the, uh, hope the band is wearing their coats. Yeah, it's not too bad today. It's about 60, mm -hmm. but um, I'm really glad we got one of those um, the propane powered, you know, fire pit kind of things for our, our deck. We okay. have a we have a wood powered wood powered. We have one that I can burn wood in. Uh, but, you know, you got to plan for for that's a several hour thing because you got to, you know, mm -hmm. light the fire and all that stuff. So we've we've got so this year we got one. Uh, and that's been great. We've been sitting on our, our porch every night with that thing because. Even what last night we came in, it was like 50 degrees outside. And I was like, oh, we were totally fine out there. I like that thing. Highly recommended. It's fun. I don't know. Something to do. Can't really leave the house as much as we used to. So, you know. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's how it goes. Uh, I do want to take a minute, though, John, and thank all of the premium subscribers whose subscription uh, uh, contributions have come in in the last... Uh, week or so here. Did we do this last week? We might not have done this last week, but I think we did it the week before. So anyway, we have some to thank. Seems I can find the list here. I found the list. Uh, if you want to learn more about this, it's at macgeekup.com slash premium. It is not mandatory at all. Of course, listening is the best thing you can do for us. But there are many ways to support the show, and this is one of them. And we really appreciate those of you who uh, who do uh, this and so we do have a special premium at macgeekab.com address for those of you that are regular premium subscribers we um we we will answer your questions first but we try to get to everything i don't think we got to everything yet this week john but we will catch up uh it's good we'd like to have lots of questions we'd like to answer them anyway uh thanking daniel from westbury Stephen from granger craig from pace chris from windsor Robert from Clearwater, Stephen from Costa Mesa, Michelle from Quebec. Uh, that's that's all I have. Quebec. There's got to be a province or something, right? Or a, a town or something. Anyway, uh, Everett from Marina, Olga from Bellevue, Jason from Charlestown, Jonathan from Woodside, Luann from Albuquerque, Brian from Glendale, Ralph from Bangor, Paul from Pomona, Ken from I'm not exactly sure where, and Gary from Babylon. Thanks to all of you for your contributions this week. You rock. 
go leave us a review, folks. Another way to contribute to the show. MacGeekUp.com slash reviews. Having your reviews, even if, if you've left a review uh, a year ago or more, you know, we've been around for a few more than just one year. Uh, go back and update it. It really does make a difference. Uh, it, it, it kind of resurfaces things, helps us to rank at Apple, and that's good for all of us, too, because it brings more listeners with more answers and material and questions. And, like, it's good to grow the Mac Geekab family. So, MacGeekUp.com slash reviews. We would love to have your new or updated review. So thanks for that. You got anything else to add, Mr. Braun, before we move on, my friend? No. All right. Well, thanks to all of you for listening. Thanks to Cashfly for providing all the bandwidth to get the show from us to you. Thanks to, of course, all of our sponsors uh, that we had in this episode, textexpander.com slash podcast, nebbia.com slash MGG. Maybe I'm going to go take a shower. It's such a nice thing now. It's so much. Oh, anyway. Uh, yeah. Anyway, uh, Lino.com slash MGG, get your hundred bucks and free credit. Plushcare.com slash MGG to talk to a doctor right from your home. It's great. Awesome. Uh, of course, our ongoing sponsors, Otherworld Computing at MaxSales.com, Barebones.com, Eero.com slash MGG. You rock. You all rock. Have a good week, folks. Have fun. Stay warm. Stay home. Stay safe. I don't know. What else we got, John? Oh, I have one more thing to share, John. You know, actually, I'm going to let all of us share it because it's so much fun when we can get together. And I look forward to the next time we can do that. So from the last in-person Mac stock straight to your ears. Don't get caught. Made up.